Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Hello. Well, today is a very big day in my life. Today is an anniversary. Not a wedding anniversary, not a big birthday. Today marks 20 years since I joined the Vienna State Opera and the Vienna Philharmonic. On the 1st of September 2000, my contract in Vienna started. Although I had been living there for a couple of weeks before, kind of moving in and getting used to things. And I'd just like to talk to you about the last 20 years of my life. Um, I have to say it's quite an emotional um, anniversary for me because it's not just about me uh, joining the Vienna Philharmonic. This is 20 years since I left the UK. I have not lived in England for 20 years. And it's 20 years since I left the London Symphony Orchestra. I first got to know the members, some members of the Vienna Philharmonic in 1988, in August 1988. And in particular, a bass trombone player called Hans Strauke, the very young, handsome, beautiful, charming young bass trombone. Oh my goodness, what's happened to him? Um, and we met in um, Salzburg. And I think the modern term is to hang out. We hung out. We did the trombone player thing and um, went drinking and eating together and had a wonderful time. And um, he came and listened to, he stood at the side of the stage in Salzburg. And um, he heard a bit of a, uh, the end of a, a concert. And we did, we were with the London Symphony with Michael Tilson Thomas and we did the Brahms Piano quintet arranged by Schoenberg and there's a bit at the in the last movement where the first trombone goes well it sounds a bit rusty I haven't played Bluebells of Scotland for a while huh? I have to get my double tongue going again <laughs> and he heard me do that and at the end of the concert he said I think one day you should join our orchestra Rudy Yosel will retire at some point and I thought that yeah 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 anyway I'm not going to go over too much ground that I've covered in previous podcasts, but due to my um, joining the European Youth Orchestra in 1980, I was convinced that at some point in my life I wanted to live outside of the UK and experience working in different musical cultures. And um, anyway, there we go. Years passed. Years passed. Hans and I stayed in contact. And then there was one time, I guess in the late 90s, when I saw him in Vienna, no. He came to see me backstage. The London Symphony were there and he specifically went out of his way and found me and said, Rudy Yosel's retiring. Would you consider applying for our job? And um, I kind of thought about it. You know, when you first trombone in the London Symphony, when you're sitting on, you know, principal trombone in your country's greatest brass section, which it was without question at that time and had been for a long time. 
and you had legendary colleagues. That was kind of something you didn't consider. You know, my predecessor had been there, goodness knows, 36 years, something like that. And um, well, certainly over 30 years. And, um, you know, he's like, leave the London Symphony. Ultimately, Will from Parker said, you know, there are not many people who use the, um, the London Symphony Orchestra as just another rung on the ladder, which was, <laughs> I didn't exactly see it that way. But anyway, you know, it's like, and it was like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And life was tough back then. Not as tough as it is now for London musicians. God bless you people. Um, you know, it's it, it was tough. We were working really hard. Well, at least we thought it was hard, but it's nothing compared to the days of the London Symphony with Valery Gurdjieff. I think that was really working hard. And um, so it was, it was getting tougher and tougher. And I lived a reasonable commuting distance from, from uh, work. But if I had a 10 o'clock rehearsal in the Barbican Centre, I used to have to leave home at 7.45 two and a quarter hours before. And I would either arrive at the Barbican Centre at 8.30 or 9.55. You never knew which one it was going to be because the transport in London in those days was not particularly reliable. A bit like what they call Southern Rail now, I think. Um, and it was really wearing me down, you know. You had a, you'd be doing three session days, three cold days. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you have to travel, if you have to travel an hour between each, you know. Anyway, long story short... I was encouraged by my then wife, to whom I suppose I should be eternally grateful, or not. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> How do we know in life whether we've made the right decisions or not? Um, I was encouraged by, by Alison to apply. So I sent um, a fax to Hans saying, hey, is your job still open? This was in April time, I think. And... Um, for those of you who don't know what a fax is, Google it. Um, and he wrote, he immediately came back and said, yes, it is. Great. Please apply. So I did. And I wasn't quite sure what I was letting myself in for. But I certainly in those days was extremely competitive. Um, um, Joe Alessi, Christian Lindbergh, myself. I consider those guys, I have so much respect for them. And I consider them friends. They're, they're a bit older than me. Um, consider them friends now, really do. Um, back then, I think there was a lot more testosterone flying around and we were all quite competitive. So the thought of doing an audition and um, winning it was very enticing, I have to say. That was probably attraction number one. Now, I don't know how I had the wisdom in those days to not think about actually whether... Whether I wanted the job. I say so often now to students when they say, oh yeah, they're putting me on probation or, or I've got this audition, but I'm really not sure whether I want the job. And I always stop them dead in their tracks and say, hey, you decide whether you were interested in that job when they put a contract on the table. Until then, just focus on winning the audition and beating everybody else and being the best you you can be when you're on probation. And I don't know how I had that kind of wisdom back then because I was pretty stupid in every other area of my life. And um, you notice I didn't laugh after saying that. <laughs> um, was just like, okay, focus on the audition, focus on the audition. And I, um, I took a month off 
in the August before the audition, so the audition was I think 20th of December 1999, something like that, and prepared for it and just to prepare. And I went to France and I practiced all morning and then I um, enjoyed myself the rest of the day. Like I said, this, I was a lot younger then. And so I prepared only focused on the audition. I know I've talked about this so many times, so I'll, I'll jump over it. Anyway, long story short, I won the audition handsomely. And I would say at this point, um, my view on foreigners in orchestras. <laughs> Let's not forget, guys, I've been an immigrant for the last 20 years. Um, uh, of course, auditioning should be totally open. As to whether there should be a level playing field or not, I'm not sure. Let's say an orchestra in Denmark has an audition and someone from Russia is fractionally better, fractionally better than someone from Denmark. Fraction, you know, it's like a minuscule point difference. I personally would be in favour of giving the job to the person who was born, raised, studied and is going to work in Denmark. And I hope that's not controversial. I mean, it's that and that's I say that as an English person, you know, if an English person takes an audition here in Switzerland, if they want a job, they should win it by a mile. It has to be something that you really can't find that you have developed at home. It's someone who's going to really change the face of your orchestra, someone who's going to really make a difference either personally, musically, technically, professionally, whatever. It has to be a huge win. And that's my, that's my feeling uh, in that regard. Um, uh, and I'm not going to go into the stylistic thing at this point. Yeah, they were suspicious of me because I wasn't from, from Austria. I think, you know, it was like, don't change a winning team. Hey, we're all Austrian kind of thing or Austro-Hungarian Empire. Let's leave it that way. Um... But I have to say, I felt, I felt um, accepted and welcomed from day one. I'll say that very, very clearly, very, very openly. Um, this is years after I left the, the Vienna Philharmonic. I had no reason to say that. I did. I felt cherished. I felt that the overwhelming um, membership of the orchestra um, were very grateful that I joined. The trombone section of the Vienna Philharmonic had not in previous years covered itself in glory um, and did not have a worldwide reputation for being of the highest possible order. Um, and, you know, it, it, my, my joining the orchestra coincided also with uh, Dietmar Kubelberg joining the orchestra, who um, comes from, a, you know, the, a very, very innately musical background. Um, and I certainly... You learn from people around you the whole time. And he was, I think, the first person who clearly articulated priority number one music, you know, when we were talking. Just sitting having a glass of priority number one music, priority number two, try and get the notes. And I think that was a, like a little worm that went in and just made me think. And it was the first, of course, first of many, many such influences. And I was, when I was in London, I used to hate making mistakes, as in splitting a note or whatever. And I remember once when I was a kid, I went six months without splitting a note in a rehearsal or a concert. One of my first six months in the London Symphony Orchestra. And I was so proud of it. 
Um, and in Vienna, I remember, I remember making a mistake in a concert and being absolutely devastated. And everyone around me going, what the hell is your problem? What? Have you heard him? Have you heard him? Listen, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's like, well, if you, if you're not trying to do anything musical and you make a mistake, well, then that's pretty bad, isn't it? But if you're trying to create something and it goes wrong, well, hey, big deal. We're in this business to create special moments. We're in this business to change people's lives and you change their lives of them with a moment of inspiration or beauty. And that was so alien to my um, London philosophy, which was, hey, we're selling a product. People don't want scratches on notes or imperfections in intonation or not together. You know, it's like, it was all based around the, we want to get as many film sessions as possible or light sessions or rock sessions or jingles or whatever. And so they don't want to be continually retaking things because, um, you know, because the second elbows made a mistake or something. Um, and to go to this environment where, yes, in the Vienna Philharmonic, you did and you do feel the weight of being of sitting in this iconic institution or orchestra. You do feel that when you're sitting on the on the stage. But they are nevertheless angestellt. They are employed. They are government employees. You know, you can you can get fired from that orchestra. Certainly when I joined, you could get fired from the orchestra, but you'd probably have to stand on your chair in a concert and drop your trousers. <laughs> More than once. <laughs> I think back then, if you did it once, you'd have a bit of out time. You know, it's like full pay. You know, we need to find out what's going wrong, you know, with Herbert. You know, it's... And, and if it kept happening, it's, well, you know, this is... And so that was completely alien to a situation uh, we had in um, London, where I'm, I'm going to say this quite clearly, where we, there was a first horn player who you can hear on the um, soundtrack to Braveheart. Um, have a listen to the first horn playing on that. Six months later, he was gone. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying whether that was right or wrong, I'm saying about the difference in the culture, you know, it's, you know, there's this London sort of like, you, you have to fight for your life attitude, certainly was then. And like I said, I've been out there, up there for 20 years and although I've got lots of friends and now lots of students who are now in jobs in London, you know, I don't really know exactly how it is. But the difference in the philosophy was this, I remember talking to uh, Clemens Helfberg, the Vorstand, the president of the Vienna Philharmonic, because I, <laughs> I had some, um, some slight problems in the trombone section when I first joined, and he took me on side and he said, yeah, yeah, you know, you're right, you're right. You see, here's a list of five people in the orchestra whose playing has gone completely, and he named them. He said, they're gone. Their playing is, is a mess. But he said, do you know why as a community, as an orchestra, it's important that we keep these people? He said, because if I fire those five, 
And he didn't say it in this way because he's not from Yorkshire, but he said the next 25 above them are going to shit themselves. And if I've got an orchestra that's paranoid and scared for its job, how can we make music? And like I said, whilst I totally understand, you know, the cutthroat environment of working in London, um, the, uh, you know, that security, the reason, the reasons why we should have security in an orchestra is not so that people can be negligent, not practice, not care and play like crap and then, and then still have a job. It's so that they have the freedom to express themselves and to try for the ultimate, because without that, you can't create. Whilst you always have safety, I think it depends what element of safety is in your mind. And it's some, I have to say, I never, I never um, can quite come to terms with going for gold and it's all turning completely wrong. So I guess my London training still leaves a certain element of safety, the element of safety requirement in my mind. In fact, I'll, I'll put it quite clearly. Um, the uh, Dietmar, the first one on play, said, you know, I've seen you, you know, for, for a week before Brahms won or, or Berg Three Pieces. Sometimes you don't sleep for a week. <laughs> he said... Sometimes we don't sleep a week afterwards. <laughs> and so they always seem to have this attitude of going into a concert and everything's going to be okay. And then when it's not, it's like, hey, well, what are we going to do, eh? Never mind, that's gone. And I kind of had the attitude of, oh, it might go wrong, it might go wrong, I have to be careful. But I guess that's my background anxiety, which um, as you get older, you realise you know, these psychological deficits that you've been living with for most of your life. So that was the difference, I guess, the biggest difference. People want, people have always asked me, what's the difference between playing in London and Vienna? Stylistically, you know, it's not an issue. London Symphony used to play clearly, used to play clearly, and the Vienna Philharmonic still do play clearly. So it wasn't a change, man. it's the philosophical change that's difficult to come to terms with. And everybody kind of thought that I was going to go to Vienna because my life would be easier. Actually, it wasn't. And if I tell, if I tell a bit of a home truth here, if I tell you, you know, about my playing, towards the end of the 90s in London, my quiet playing in solos, once I was in, I could float and play as quietly as you like, just like I can now. It's one of the best things I can do. But the cherry picking, coming in on a quiet entry, I honestly was going through a crisis in London. And um, so I guess I picked the wrong orchestra to go to. <laughs> Colin Davis, bless him. The great Colin Davis had scared me. Um, he, he, I, I guess a lot of conductors thought I was infallible. Um, a lot of people have made the mistake of thinking that I, I, I'm sort of like unshakably confident. And that's why I think people have felt they can sort of give me a bit of a kicking every now and then, but I'm actually very weak inside. I have um, almost unshakable um, confidence in my ability as a trombonist, but not always my unshakable you know, confidence at getting things right. It's like I said, this is background anxiety. And I also share something in common with someone, with a uh, cricketer in England called Jeff Boycott, who I idolised when I was a kid. And they said in the dressing room, 
No matter how good he was, he needed people around to tell him how good he was. And so I guess if I'm being honest, yeah, there's a bit of that about me. You know, it's just sort of like the approval of my colleagues has always been really, really important. Um, um, which I guess is why in Switzerland I find life quite difficult because, you know, you, you, you don't have approval of your colleagues or other people above you. You do your job. That's why we pay you. You know, and it's, it's nothing personal. It's just like no one walks up and says, hey, your class is great. Well done. It's like, yeah, so you're, you're our trombone teacher. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, so, so towards the end of the 90s, there's at the end, towards, towards the end of Brahms' second symphony, um, he goes, and he stopped, and he only goes, and he with his hand up. Now, he was a gentleman. He was not trying to do something bad to me, but... It's like you only need, and, and do you know what? I, 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 we did it like 25 times on tour in one year and I never missed it. But my body was charged with electricity and every muscle in my body was just. <sighs> and from that point on, I got a bit of a fear of, uh, of quiet entries. And then I went to Vienna. <laughs> and... I don't think you truly know what pianissimo is until you sat in the Vienna Philharmonic because all of a sudden it's like you're standing on the top of Mount Everest with no sides and nothing. You just stand, All you can hear is you. You can't hear anybody else at all because they still value this ultra pianissimo for its emotional value, not for its decibel value. Pianissimo has an emotional value. It's not a decibel reading. Um, and so he was like, well, I have to confront this. And I had some pretty nasty moments. I also discovered I was not the only one in the brass section or even in the trombone section who didn't like doing those things either. Um, I, I used to play most of the Brahms ones, Schubert Nines and Parsifals um, <laughs> as a trade-off. And I have to say that the first couple of years of Tristan's, oh my goodness me. You know, with, with conductors who, I'm thinking of Semyon Bichkov here, who did Tristan quite a lot with the orchestra. And, you know, if you're a violinist, you stick your left, one of your left fingers down, bang. You put the bow on the string quietly and you just sit there. And when you decide to start to know, you slowly start to move the bow. It's that easy. And we all know as brass players, it ain't that easy. So Semyon Bichkov would just slowly let his hands descend on a chord and no one knows when to play. And then all of a sudden a bit of a comes probably from a viola and the, the chord starts. It's like, where the heck do I play here? And I remember one, the last note of Tristan after five and a half hours once in the first year, I, I just hung my trombone. I didn't even play it. It's like, I have no idea. People were coming in, it seemed, when they felt like it. Um, and that took a while. <laughs> and I asked a lot of colleagues. 
Wolfgang Tombuck, the, the, the legendary, the great Wolfgang Tombuck on first horn, he said, you look at the conductor. Oh, God, no, 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 no. And if you see him playing, he's got these half reading glasses. He's got these reading, so he, he can't, he, and he's just looking down. He said, no, no, I decide when to play. It's not his decision, it's mine. <laughs> so then I just breathe and play. Um, and everyone had their own kind of like uh, tactic of doing it. But that, that, that stressed me. So I feel as though I kind of did a, a, a research project, as it were, on something like that. And, and in the end, came kind of to get too used to it. So the stylistic differences were not a problem. The practical differences of like the extremes of dynamic um, were a problem. The musical philosophical element was the biggest thing that I, I had to learn. Um, when I first moved to Vienna in, in 2000, I rented one of the Vienna Philharmonic apartments. At the end of the Second World War, when Vienna was uh, decimated, decimated and quartered, um, with who was it, the French, the Americans, the English, and the Russians, each having a quarter of, Russia, of, of, of Vienna. And at the end of the war, the authorities said to the Vienna Philharmonic, you have a choice, we'll either give you two houses, a house, by the way, meaning 20 apartments, or you can have the music fine. And... Because their houses had been bombed, they took the houses. And so, but imagine now if the Vienna Philharmonic actually owned the Musikverein. I mean, musically they do, but, you know, actually if they literally owned them. So they owned two, two houses in Vienna, and I rented in, on the Wiedner Hauptstrasse. And the first thing that I noticed was, you go there, and it was such a different dynamic to London. I mean, I was literally, and I won't exaggerate, 15 minutes walk from the stage door of the Vienna, Vienna State Opera. And there you were, there were mechanics, there were handwerker, you know, painters, decorators, teachers, scholars, poets, musicians, all mixing together. It was such a mixed environment there because it was... Vienna had not exploded in price as London had, as Munich had, as Paris had. Vienna was still for the Viennese, or whoever the Viennese may be. As one of my colleagues said, my mother was Polish, my father was Czech. You can't get any more Viennese than that. <laughs> you know, the, the, the mixing pot that Vienna is. You know, that it was, it was affordable for everybody. And... What the beautiful thing about that was, and I hope there's still an element of it, was painters and decorators, school teachers, you know, car mechanics, all mixing with members of the Vienna Philharmonic meant that music was a normal, everyday part of everybody's diet. And I'm happy with that point. Let's think about that one a while. That it's a part of everybody's everyday life. The other thing was, I'm a bit of an amateur historian. I love walking in the footsteps of my predecessors or my 
of giants of yesterday. So the Wiener Hauptstraße, when I came out of the door of the, of, of, I can't remember what number Wiener Hauptstraße, Wiener Hauptstraße it was. I came out, I opened the front door and there was a blue plaque on the house opposite. That's where Sibelius lived. So that was already, oh, pretty cool. And then he walked down towards, oh, and that's where Brahms lived. Always oh, right, you keep going. And then you walk past where Vivaldi lived. That's all in your way to work. You're walking past this stuff. You're surrounded by... And, and then... Taubstummengasse um, was where Marla used to go and visit his daughter. You know, it's like, God, she's just thinking, it, was, it was amazing. It was just amazing. I just found it incredible. So I was kind of picked up by this wave of music and musicality. And I still get wistful remembering those days. I couldn't believe the concerts we did. The first recording I did with the orchestra was the Alpine Symphony with Christian Tielemann. It was Christian Tielemann's debut. I think it was my second concert with the orchestra. Um, and, you know, I, I'd been given the official probation time in the Vienna Philharmonic, Vienna State Opera is two years. And I said I'd managed to wheedle out from the London Symphony six months. They said, we'll hold your job for six months. And there was, I, I think the board of directors in the London Symphony, there were eight of them. And the vote to give me six months off went seven to one. And I know who the one was. <laughs> Patrick Harold. One day you should explain that one to me. <laughs> There are no secrets in life, I'm afraid. Um, and he's my mate. And that did surprise me. Anyway. <sighs> there you go. So anyway, they give me six months. And in Vienna, they've got this thing called Durchwurstlerei, which means literally through sausaging. <laughs> means somehow we're going to find a way of making it work. Um, and I say, yeah, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It's going to work somehow. It'll work. Nah, don't worry. And, and ultimately, he kind of always did. So, but they said, yeah, yeah, no, fine, no, we'll, do, we'll, we'll do your probation inside six months. And um, so as the time grew close, like two weeks before, I said, guys, you know, I, I have my time off in the London Symphonies running out. And I have to say, my uh, best and terribly missed friend, Rod Franks, first trumpet in the London Symphony, one of the first trumpets, it was he made it his mission to get me time off because in back in those days, taking six, keeping your job open for six months, what? No, if you want to leave, leave. And um, Rod had spoken to Philip Jones, the great Philip Jones, said, "Hey, Ian's got this job in Vienna," and and Philip said to him, "Hey, you better make sure he gets a, a, a sabbatical because he's probably going to be back pretty soon." <laughs> He assumed, because when I joined the Vienna Philharmonic, it was quite old-fashioned. The Vienna Philharmonic that Philip would have got to know in the 50s and 60s, that uh, really was another era. And so that's probably what he was basing it on. And he said, um, yeah, you better, he's probably going to be back. In other words, they'll probably kick him out of his probation. So, so Rod managed to do that for me. I'm looking up now. Thank you, Rod. And um, so after nearly six months, I said to... Um, I said to, to the guys in the section, hey, hey, my probation, you know. Oh, yeah, we should do something about that. 
And then they go and speak in the office. No, 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 no probation is two years. I said, well, I can't, my, my job, they're only holding it home for six months in London. No, no, it's, it's, uh, it, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry, you'll be confirmed, but, but it's going to be two years. And then I said, actually, no, it's not. You know, on, on the 1st of, was it February? No, March, on the 1st of March, uh, 2001, if you don't confirm me, I'm going to be first trombone in the London Symphony again. And on that day, we're playing Marla 3 in Carnegie Hall. So don't be surprised if there's an empty chair there, was what I said. And so, you know, it was kind of, they then said, well, <clears throat> yeah, okay, well, we better have the jury sit something. So they had the meeting and, you know, it's like immediately afterwards, I got a phone call from Deepman, I think it was. And he was like, yeah, I think he said sort of like, yeah, of course, it was, it was unanimous. It was, yes, you passed, it's no problem, you're, you're confirmed. But there wasn't any need to make such a fuss about it, <laughs> which, funny enough, I've heard quite a lot in my life. Um, and so that was that. And I kind of decided I was going to stay there three years. That's it, do three years and then move to France and buy a little small holding and have chickens and do a bit of playing and a bit of teaching and commute back to London when I needed some money, that kind of thing. But my love for the orchestra and life um, and the quality of life that it afforded me, afforded, very good choice of words, um, you know, became quite attractive, I have to say. And But the music was what really kept me there. You know, putting that grey suit, the Stresemann, putting that grey suit on and walking between the Vienna State Opera and the Music Verein is just indescribable. The pride, the pride of sitting there with that, I want to call it a uniform, a uniform on, was just immense. I still have it downstairs. So if they ever want me to go and do something, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'll, I'll go back and play second trombone in uh, Magic Flute or something like that in the opera. That's no fault. <laughs> um, and you were like royalty. If I went into a band, sorry, if I went into a bank in England, said, what do you do for, I'm a musician. Oh, really? You're like Buddy Holly. No, 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 it's like... Uh, it goes like that, and there's banjo. No, no, it's a trombone. Oh, well, okay. Can I have a loan? No. <laughs> and then you go to Vienna, and you walk into a bank, and someone says, ah, oh, Herr Doctor Professor, you know, the bank manager has no meetings. Would you like a coffee? <laughs> so <laughs> um, it was quite different. And I literally... Literally, there was what they call a Reifenhandler, someone who changes tires outside the, the apartment in the Wiener Hauptstrasse. And every morning I'd walk past him and he'd say, Good morning, Herr Doctor Professor. The Viennese are obsessed with titles. So I think if you remember the Vienna Philharmonic, you're a Doctor Professor. And so that was the different kind of status in life was extraordinary. Really, really amazing. After, um, I guess, if anyone's listened to this waiting for some tittle-tattle or, or nasty stuff about the Vienna Philharmonic, you can probably tell. You're not going to get it because this podcast's about me and my experiences. And, <laughs> and also, there wasn't that much. The Vienna Philharmonic's a family, and in every family there are 
different personalities and different opinions. And um, in every family, and I've played in several orchestral families, and let me tell you, the Vienna Philharmonic is not the only family with problems in every regard. And so I guess I was made to feel welcome by, by everybody. It wasn't easy. And it's easy to look back and say, well, was it racism? No, no, it wasn't. I am an abrasive personality. I am going to create polarized reactions wherever I go because I say what I think. And I have an opinion. But I think after a while, most people realize in the orchestra that I love the orchestra. I still do love the orchestra dearly. Um, so I was accepted. Um, I think a few people were scared. I was accused of being a hire and fire merchant. Um, because that's the they knew that's the environment I'd come from in in London, and so those, as it were, bottom five people <laughs> were not really enamoured that someone from a higher and fire environment had joined their midst. Um, so, but I think in time, I think in time, things things were were were, were cool. Um, after a couple of years, I bought a house in the Vienna woods in a place called Gruberau in Wienerwald in the Vienna woods. And I loved it. And um, it cost me a bit more than one year's salary. Think about that. So that's why it was possible for people to um, mix with different parts of society and not live in their own little bubbles. And I loved that place. Every day I spent there was like a holiday. And the idea was that it was going to be a holiday home and we'd keep the apartment in the 4th District. In fact, I bought an apartment in the 4th District. So I bought an apartment in the 4th District and had the house in the Vienna Woods as well. And uh, I just never spent any time in Vienna because it only took 40 minutes to get home after an, after um, a performance, which let's go back to how long it used to take me when I lived in London. And um, so I just went out there and I had a waterfall in my garden. It wasn't a water feature. It was a river with a waterfall. And I used to go to sleep at night with the window open and I'd hear the wind blowing through the trees in the woods at the bottom of the garden and the water running over the waterfall. And it was absolutely wonderful. I remember one time not noticing that a storm arrived and it hit the uh, lightning conductor that was about six feet above my bedroom window. And uh, I nearly had a seizure. Um, all the lights came on in the house. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> Austria does a very good line in storms. We don't have those so much in Switzerland. I think they're, they're very civilized. They make sure the storms happen in the mountains. In Austria, they happened everywhere, and Hochwasser, flooding. But anyway, and that was where I started to build my wine cellar. I became addicted to the great variety called Grüneveltliner, which is an addiction that remains with me, particularly those grown in the Wachau, um, uh, above Krems. The Wachau Valley, beautiful, stunningly beautiful place. Didn't spend enough time there, actually. 
and um, anyone who comes from Austria knows exactly what they need to bring for me. So I got very addicted and I started building that. And every year I, I went on my one week homage to Burgundy in France. The journey was between 11 and 13 hours. I think my record was nine and a half, but how I didn't get stopped for speeding, I don't know. Um, but it was normally between 11 and 13 hours, which I usually did in one shot, up through Austria, up into Germany, across, down, far, and that way. And um, so I started building my Burgundy cellar and got to know Jean-Michel and Christine Jacob in Echetel, and got to know JJ, the people, Alan and Sophie at JJ Comfortable. And um, yeah, so that was another big part of my life. And in actual fact, moving on years later, people wonder why, why the heck did you move to Bern? Question I ask myself on a regular basis. Um, it was because it was the closest professorship to Burgundy. And also the fact that Branimir Slokard built a very, very successful class here. And, you know, Bern was known as being a, a bit of a, a trombone capital. So, but that was the idea, was to move close to Burgundy. So that's why, that's why I did that. Um, do I regret leaving London? I miss it, but no. I had a lot of fun. I was me. I think when you leave your home country, you leave a little bit of yourself behind, which is replaced by something unnatural from where you have moved to. Unnatural because you weren't born with that. And I've moved twice. Now, I never felt that in Austria, I lost any of my identity. I have to say, well, I probably did. Austria was where I went to college. Austria was where I studied. Austria was where I learned music. Uh, what a place to do it. Um, I think in Switzerland, I think I have lost some of my personality. I think I fight to remain to be the cheeky, don't want to swear, um, that I always was, who didn't give a don't want to swear about anything. Because I've always had that element to my personality as well, I feel. But I guess part of that's getting older as well. And part of that's having a couple of little kids who have ground me down. Greatest moments in Vienna? Apart from the entirety of the 12 years. Playing the Rota Concerto with Ricardo Muti five times. Doing it in the season concert in Vienna. The first trombone player ever to do a season concert in the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, in its history. Walking out onto the stage knowing that that was professionally going to be the greatest moment of my life, knowing that. That was special. The second movement of Bruckner 8 with Christian Thielemann on tour every night, making me think I should really go back to church um, because it was extraordinary. Most things with Ricardo Muti, loving getting to know Pierre Boulez, better, the other side of Pierre Boulez, who could swim in so many different oceans. The man who was at home in the ensemble in the Contemporain and in the Vienna Philharmonic. And getting to love opera and getting to love the everyday 
performing. I loved building the trombone section. Unfortunately, Jeremy Wilson and I left on the same day because we'd built a great team. And that I, I do miss. I miss the daily thing of being in a team. Um, you know what the great thing about the Vienna Philharmonic is? I realize only now, one of my best friends from Vienna just spent a few days staying with us. When you're in Vienna, you're in there. You know, I talked to him about world events, about Donald Trump, about Boris Johnson. About he has no idea. They don't look at the. They don't look at the news. There is only one world, and that's the world of the Vienna Philharmonic. You live in your own self-created world, and it's a beautiful world. It's a secure, beautiful, warm environment. Some people go into it at the age of 16 or 18 and don't leave until they are dragged out kicking and screaming at the age of 65. And so many of them sadly pass away shortly thereafter because life without that routine of getting up in the morning and putting your suit on because you're playing three calls nearly every day, the string players work like dogs in that orchestra. Um, so any of you thinking, you know, Vienna Philharmonic, easily life, loads of money. Per service, it's probably one of, not one of the best paid orchestras in the world. In fact, certainly not. They just work and work and work and work and work. And in their spare time, they play chamber music. And then it all stops. And I saw that and didn't want to kind of fall into that trap of hitting 65 and thinking, well, what was that? <laughs> and knowing that I was just going to keep playing the same Nevertheless, wonderful music, but just keep playing it. And uh, so, decided to move. I'm a changer. I'm a mover. Um, it's interesting. Every 10 years, um, every 10 years, I've moved. Moved country, moved, um, moved job, had a domestic disaster. I moved on and I realize now age 56 heading towards 57 that I am faced with a change in my life that I cannot run away from I'm getting old it doesn't matter what I change in my life I can't run away from the fact that the cracks are beginning to show that the 35 years of burning the candle at both ends and in the middle are starting to have their effect on me so my fight for change now is fighting for the change in my uh, lifestyle, in how I see life, and working on staying healthy. It's something that happens to everybody. I think that's what's called a midlife crisis, isn't it? Um, and where was I? God, you know what? I've spoken all of this so far, just off the hoof. I didn't make any notes. I just decided to talk to you. And I have no idea how long this has been going. So it came kind of for the time to, to move on. Do I regret leaving Vienna? Yes, I do. After all this time, I can quite clearly say, yes, I do. And I'll tell you why I regret it. Yes, I miss the music. If I hear the Karfreitag Zauber from Parsifal, I burst into tears. Yes. Um, do I miss laughing and making rude noises with my colleagues. Yes, 
I used to laugh every day. Every working environment I've had, apart from this now, I'm a professor. Every working environment I've had, I've laughed till I've cried every day. Often at my own expense. Nevertheless, laughed till I've cried every day. Um, that I miss. But most of all, I miss the bubble. I miss the only thing that counted in life was that orchestra. Because you were living there all day, every day. What happened outside didn't matter. Any political changes? Yeah, who cares? It's the Vienna Philharmonic. It's here today. It's going to be here tomorrow. And, you know, sure as eggs is eggs. As, as long as my heart's still beating, I'm going to, get, going to get up tomorrow morning, put that grey suit on and go and play. And life was easy. Life was sorted out. Giving human beings a choice is very difficult. So that's the thing that I miss the most. Um, I made the move to come to Vienna, uh, excuse me, to Bern in 2011. I got the job in 12 I started. And it's not ideal, but the more I learn about teaching establishments, there isn't such a thing as an ideal teaching establishment. Um, I love my students. I, by nature, I'm incapable of doing a bad job at anything. I will do whatever it takes to do the best job I possibly can. And I guess that's why I've always been infinitely employable, because people can see that. Um, and the more I teach, the more obsessed I become with teaching. I have had to work at teaching far harder than I ever had to work at playing the trombone. But I'm getting there. I'm 56. I feel as though, you know, if you take a lesson with me now, I'm not going to waste your time. It ain't easy. Ladies and gentlemen, teaching is the most difficult aspect of the music business. To be a good teacher. Teaching is not about telling people what you do. That's, excuse me, that's bullshit. That's not teaching. Teaching is working out what somebody needs and how to explain that to each individual because it's slightly different, how to approach it. And so I do love that and my class gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. I'm frankly embarrassed by the quality of the class that is starting this September. Frankly, I, I hope I don't let them down. They are that good. Um, and, and I guess what students see in me is the commitment and they see the fact that I am there for them and they see the fact that I plan my year around my class. Um, I will teach Sunday, Monday, Tuesday one week, fly away, go to America or Japan and then teach Friday, Saturday, Sunday the next week. And I plan, I always block things. You're not going to find me disappearing for two weeks or God knows, some teachers, three weeks. It's just not going to happen. And now with this social distancing thing, we found a way that I can be constantly in contact with my students and constantly mentoring them. Um, and I think that's the best you can give to your students, to yourself. It's time. You give time to your students. You give them your attention. And time doesn't mean the amount of time that you teach a student. Time means the amount of time you are there for them. Because if you teach somebody 60 minutes, 90 minutes on a Tuesday, and it's like, you don't call me until I see you next time. 
or don't send me a recording. If you've got a problem, wait till hey, yeah, that's no good. I'll be back in two weeks, you know. So anyway, being there. So England, it's finally taken me 20 years to say to you right now, quite clearly, if you put two passports on a table, one Swiss one, one British one, and told me to take one, it wouldn't be the British one. It's taken 20 years of having left the UK. I think stage by stage, you become de-Britishified. <laughs> and I would have said until this time last year, there's part of me that will always be British. Now, obviously, in my personality, yes. But there's part of me that relates to Britain right now, that's gone. That's, that's gone. I still love so many people in London. I still love my time in London. But I have changed. I have become more European than British, I would say. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm sad about that. I think Britain is going through a bit of a crisis, as is the US. And I wish them all of the very, very best. I really, it's a great country, you know. So I hope things get sorted out there. And the world is in a very strange place. I would never have thought 20 years ago that I would see my, as I started in Vienna, that I would see my profession evaporating before my eyes. But that seems to be what's happening right now. But I think a good place really to end this podcast is to say thank you to somebody and to tell you how I'm going to be celebrating. <laughs> I'd like to go back to what I started with in this podcast and say thank you to Hans Stroker because without his regular interventions, I would never have gone to Vienna. I would never have left the UK. It's as simple as that. Um, I don't know whether he realizes how grateful I am to him. Um, of course, I'm infinitely grateful for all of the music that I learned and experienced in Vienna. Um, but I'm very grateful to Hans for what he did. He was a very, when you look at the list of special people in your life, he has to count as one of them, if only for him welcoming me with open, open arms in Vienna. So maybe, Kelton, if you're listening to this, you could <laughs> play him this. Um, and the, and how I'm going to celebrate, I'm going to sit down and look back over the last 20 years, my poor wife will have to listen to it, <laughs> and drink one or two bottles of wine from the year 2000 that were hanging as grapes when I started in Vienna. I have quite a wide choice. I have some beautiful 2000 burgundies. There's some, some Chablis Premier Cru from Louis Michel, which is very nice. He's still drinking very nice. I have a corner from uh, Noel Verse. I have Domaine de Chevalier, 2000. Um, and uh, I have a Clos Rougeau, 2000, from JJ Confort. So that's how I'm going to be um, celebrating my 20 years. Now, I don't know how I would classify this podcast. I'm not sure whether I'm doing something informative for you to listen to 
or whether it's therapy for me. Goodbye. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff.